Hi, this is Gabe Witcher, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. So my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is fiddle player and producer Gabe Witcher. Gabe, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And uh, a week ago, I would have said... Gabe Witcher, fiddle player for Punch Brothers. And as of a couple of days ago, that's no longer the case. That's, that is true. That is true. I have, uh, after 18 years, I have taken my leave of Punch Brothers and uh, going to do something else. <laughs> do other it was, things. It was really cool to see on sort of social, to see kind of, because everybody knew this was going to be your last couple of shows with the band so it was a kind of felt like even seeing it from across the atlantic via social media it felt like a celebration how were they those last couple of shows yeah it, it was wonderful so the last last batch of shows was at the telluride bluegrass festival which itself was celebrating its 50th year and uh it was actually my 21st year doing yeah. the festival and um as i started doing telluride when i was still with jerry douglas uh, before Punch Brothers was even a thing. And so Telluride has been a part of Punch Brothers world since the very beginning. So it seemed like a really appropriate place to have the last couple shows and, and, and close out that chapter. And, and yeah. it was, it was, it was lovely. It was really, really lovely. Um, you know, bittersweet for sure. It's always sad to leave something that's so, such a huge part of your life and so meaningful in so many ways, but, it was just, it was all, it was filled with love and, and it was very positive and to feel that from the band and from the, the, the larger bluegrass community and all of the people who participated with us, it was really a, I couldn't think of a better way to, to, to do that. As you say, 18 years and that sort of goes back to before Punch Brothers was even called Punch Brothers, I guess you, you were there yeah. from from the beginning of it all. Um, and I'd love to chat about that because that's sort of, as the band came together and, you know, all these sort of different stories sort of coalesced into a band that then became Punch Brothers. And it, it feels like it was quite a meaningful time for you all. It wasn't just a, oh, we've met, let's form a band. It felt like a, you know, a real journey. Yeah, well, it was it was a long time in the making um, because Chris Thiele and I actually met in the late 80s uh, at a festival in Southern California called the Follows Camp Bluegrass Festival. And uh, it was a brand new festival, it, you know, not like one of these, not like a Telluride that's been going on since the 70s. Um, but it was actually started by my my first fiddle teacher. And he put it together in the mountains above Los Angeles. And uh, I went to the first one, and I think I was the only kid musician there. And then by the second one, uh, there were a couple other kids and one of them was Chris Thiele and he was, I don't know, seven, eight years old, something like that. And I'm a, a year or two older than him. But, uh, I remember being introduced to him somebody saying, Hey, you know, you should meet this other kid. He plays, plays mandolin and a bunch of stuff just like you. And, uh, you guys should get together and play. And we said, Oh, nice to meet you. Do you want to go, you know, let's go play football. So there was actually not any music being made at first. And, and we got a ball and went into the, the dirt road that ran along the festival and played. And, and we were just instant friends. And 
at that, you know, later on in the evening after the music is when the jamming begins. And so I think at that point, we probably got our instruments out and played and played and played and played. And from then on, there was just like, you know, a very strong connection, musical and personal, really. And we would see each other, I don't know, three, four times a year at various festivals in the area. And every time it was just like immediately, like just no time had passed. And we were right back where we had left off. And um, I think it was the following year, he said, oh, you got to meet my other friends that, that are going to come up um, from San Diego, uh, Sean and Sarah Watkins. And so, you know, there we were, this this group. And there were a couple other other kids around, but, you know, there were four or five of us, five or six of us, I guess, actually, um, cruising around <laughs> like a roving gang at these festivals. Just, uh, and it, so, you know, we all kind of came up and grew up together. And Chris and I had always discussed finding a way to make music in a formal setting, as opposed to these kind of informal jams at festivals or contests or whatever. And he, you know, him and Sean and Sarah started Nickel Creek and they were doing that. And then Chris moved from California to Kentucky and we didn't get to see each other all that much for our teenage years, essentially. And it wasn't until they were back in Los Angeles making, I think it's their third record. Why should the fire die? that we all reconnected. Um, and, uh, you know, they would call me when they were getting out of the studio and, hey, come over to this house that we rented and let's, you know, let's hang. We, you know, we're, we're done for the day. And over the course of a couple of months of these hangs, Chris and I finally just went, hey, I think it's time for us to actually put something together. And we didn't know what it would be. And we didn't want to, specify actually what it would be because I think we were both looking for an opportunity to just kind of figure out what else we could do, what other kind of music we could make. And so we started toying with ideas and he had this idea that he wanted to compose a, a long piece, a long kind of in, in a classical style, but for bluegrass instruments. And I thought that was an interesting idea. And, you know, we, we kind of just put it on the back burner. He had more Nickel Creek stuff to do. I had other, you know, I, I was involved in some other stuff. I was with Jerry Douglas. I was taking other sideman jobs, doing sessions in Los Angeles. But in the back of our minds, it was always kind of like, we're going to find some actual time to do this project. And I, I'll never, I'll never forget. It was Telluride weekend uh, in 2005. And this was actually the one Telluride in the last 21 years I didn't go to because I was on the road with uh, with Kenny Loggins, of all people. Um, and he called me on Sunday morning or Monday morning or something like that. And he said, hey, I think I found our next player in our band. I'm like, really? He said, yeah, this banjo player, Noam McKelney. Do you know him? And I said, you mean Pickles? <laughs> And he's like, yeah, oh my God, he's amazing. And uh, I said, yeah, I just he, I just played on his first solo record. Like we just spent a week together making a record and I thought it was was fantastic. He's like, yeah, we just we just jammed all night long and I think he should be in our band. I was like, absolutely, that would be phenomenal. And so that, you know, once we had 
mandolin, fiddle, and banjo. It was kind of obvious it was taking shape as a bluegrass band. And after we brought Noam in, he said, hey, what about, what about Chris Eldridge? Do you know him? And I had met, I had met Critter, I think, once at a festival somewhere. And I was like, I don't really know him, but like I, I heard him play and he's, you know, he's awesome. He'd be great. And uh, I want to say like maybe a month or two later, Chris and Noam, Chris was in Nashville doing something and he decided, oh, let, you know, called Noam, said, let's get together with a couple of guys and it'll be a, a hang, but it'll be kind of an audition on the sly. And so they invited Critter over and then uh, Noam had played with Greg Garrison in Leftover Sam and he said, let's bring Greg over because Greg's great and let's just see what happens. And so they got together and they played and Chris kind of, you know, he was, they played tunes and they hung and they had drinks and Chris started kind of throwing out some nuggets of ideas that he had had for this piece. He didn't tell him what it was. He was just like, Hey, I have this idea. It's like this kind of thing. What if we do this? And what if you try this kind of thing? And somewhere I still have these voice memos because they, they made recordings um, of them trying out stuff that ended up being the blind, leaving the blind. And, uh, and then he called me the next day after that and he goes, okay, we have our band. Listen to this. And he sent me the voice memos. I'm like, okay, yes, that sounds phenomenal. And let's do it. And so the first time we actually got together, uh, to, to play was Thanksgiving week in uh, 2005. And Chris had sent us, uh, this crazy finale file <laughs> of just like, what? is this, I'd never heard anything like it. And, you know, it was in very, like he'd just gotten the ideas down so they could be delivered to us. And, you know, you press the space bar and the MIDI plays and it's just like a barrage of just like, what is going on here? And we all set out to, to make sense of it. And it was really amazing. We, uh, we all got it a few weeks before, so we had time to kind of prepare. But once we finally got in a room together, it was when, you know, the magic kind of happened. Um, we played, just to get started, we played this fiddle tune, St. Anne's Reel. And within 10 seconds, we were all like, oh, yes, this is actually, this is really something. Um, and over the course of the week, we worked up what he had written of the blind leaving the blind and a bunch of other stuff. And we ended up playing a show. We actually ended up playing two shows, one very informal, just at a bar, uh, in New York city. And then one that was actually kind of announced and promoted at a place that would become a mainstay in, in punch brothers world called the, the living room on the lower East side. And, and somewhere in my archives, I have a recording of that performance as well. Um, and what was the band even billed at at that point? What was the, what it was, was the band it called? Was, it was billed as the Tensions Mountain Boys. <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, continuing with the the two traditions in bluegrass of kind of uh, something Mountain Boys and usually a pun of some kind. So that's what we went as just because we needed something. And, um, you know, strangely, talking about that gig, we played... Uh, it was either that one or, or the, the following one we did a couple weeks later where we played um, 
we call it red handed, but it's the second half of the first movement of the blind, leaving the blind where it goes in the mm. really fast, fast piece. Um, like more of like a, a, a song song. And, uh, we played that at the, uh, at the late night opera house set, uh, at Telluride. And I was fine emotionally <laughs> until that moment I was holding it together. And when we played that piece, just the feeling of the first time of all of us getting on stage and like trying out this brand new music that we just learned. And it was something that was new and, and a stretch for all of us to try and to do is that the feeling of doing that came rushing back. And I was just like, wow, you know, that, that hit me pretty hard at that moment. Yeah. And so, and how does the, how to grow a woman record fit into that then? Cause that was the first record you all made together. That's right. So but that's sort of pre punch and pre blind, leaving the blind being recorded. That's right. So what we, what we actually did was, um, after we had gotten most of the piece up and running of the blind, leaving the blind up and running, uh, we got into the studio. And so Chris wrote the first movement and the last movement, uh, you know, before the other, the remaining two. And so we, we recorded those in a studio. Uh, and the idea was with just two mics in the room, everything live and, uh, out to, to tape, you know, like just really trying to eliminate as much as we can. So it was just about us playing music. And we did those two, uh, in a, you know, in a couple of days. And then the plan was to, as he wrote the other two movements to get back together and play the record those and then release that as, as our album. And that would be our project. And Chris and I will have, you know, fulfilled our dream of making something together and we'd all go about our separate ways and, and, uh, and it would be a nice thing that exists in the world. But as things progressed, uh, and he, you know, he was writing, but we were getting together more often to, to, you know, to work through the stuff that he had written. Uh, it really became apparent that we wanted to make more of this project than just that. And so it was also taking us longer to, it was taking him longer. He, he the, in getting us all together, like he said, this like the ideas just exploded. And so what he thought he was going to do with the piece ended up, he wanted to do more with it because he started to get a sense of what we could do as a, as an ensemble. And so the writing of the second and third movement actually took longer than he was anticipating. And in the meantime, we thought, you know, we, we started to get a sense of what this music was going to be. And at the time, it seemed like a pretty radical departure from anything that any of us had ever done. And we were worried that, that it was going to, it was going to be kind of a whiplash scenario if this was the first thing that we put out and people mm -hmm. were going to be scratching their heads and be going, what, what, <laughs> huh? This doesn't like to go from nickel Creek to that or anything else that, you know, leftover salmon to that, or, you know, whatever else we were doing was just going to be too like out of left field. So we decided that we would make a more traditional bluegrass record, which even for us is like not really that traditional, but 
compared to what we had been working on and what we knew was coming down the pike, this record is like straight down the middle. And so Chris had some ideas for some songs and we had some ideas for some covers and we thought, okay, let's just make a record really quick, like as quick as we can and get it out there so that we present this project to the world with something that's accessible. And then once people know that we're a thing, then we can hit them with the heavy stuff. And so that's what we did. We got, uh, I think we made How to Grow a Woman from the Ground. We had three days rehearsal and three days in the studio. And that's what came out of it. And it's a great record. I love that record. Yeah, I, I love it too. I Listening to it now, almost, gosh, almost 20 years later, uh, we have so much energy. <laughs> <laughs> we're young but we're also super excited to to be doing it and making music with each other and it's just yeah it's a really i think it's a really fun record hmm. yeah yeah and, oh and 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 we had, and fun funny enough we ended up making that record in the same studio in the same configuration that we had made what we were calling now the demos of the blind leaving the blind and uh and so we put that record out. We put How to Grow a Woman from the Ground out and toured off of that. And uh, and then once we got done with that, None Such Records, who we were, Chris was moving to them. He uh, said, you know, what if you guys like redid Blind Leaving the Blind in a, you know, let's get you into a, a, a different studio and, and, and capture it a different way. And you guys add a few more songs now that you're established. And that's what eventually became Punch. And those those two movements that you redid in the studio are the original demos that different? Now you listen back to them, or no. if you have you listened back to them, is it? No, I, yeah, I haven't listened to them in a while, but um, we actually ended up recording the entire piece in that configuration. Um, and and I, you know, there are some parts of it that are better, I think, than what we ended up with on the Punch record. And I have a feeling at some point in the future, those demos will be released and you, people can compare and, and say, Oh, listen to what went down this first time as opposed to the second time. Or, Oh, I see why they got back into the studio because this sonic issue, you know, needed to be resolved in a different way or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, the 20 year anniversary is coming up. So I don't know, that might be a good time. <laughs> well, and it's really interesting what you're saying about, um, sort of anticipating the reaction to blind leaving the blind coming cold to it and that idea of and so having those other songs around it on the record but i love it because it starts with punch bowl which mm -hmm. is such a kind of statement of intent it's like a mission statement calling card it's got it's so kind of um pokes you in the ear and kind of wakes you up and goes this is what you're going to get some more of so you might as well get yeah. used to it and I yeah. love that. I love a I love a record that just starts with like, get your coat on, we're going over here. You know. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 uh, <laughs> yeah. The intention was to do exactly that, and it kind of makes you feel like maybe it's a pretty straight ahead bluegrass song, but then the tonality starts to tweak you, and you're like, wait, there's something. I don't I don't want to say off about it because I don't think it's off, but there's something like different about it. And it's like, okay, yes, we, we're in a familiar place, but we're in a totally different world within that place. Um, and so hopefully, yeah, that sets things up for what's to come.
Yeah, totally. And then, and then obviously you get the the full experience of Blind Leaving. What I love about Blind Leaving the Blind is it's got a sort of like song cycle quality. It's almost like listening mm-hmm. to like a Schubert song cycle or watching an opera, or it's like this condensed, fairly um, intense journey over mm-hmm. the space of you know 35, 40 minutes. And there's some a build and some resolution and some like tension and some release and and yet, at moments, it's just like somebody singing you a song as well. It's a, mm-hmm. it's quite an extraordinary piece of music. Yeah, I think that you know the the what Chris set out to do was kind of combine all of the things that he loves in music in, and see if he could turn it into one consistent piece. You know, like just like you said, it's you know it can be very can can be very heavy musically um or intense musically but then all of a sudden you're listening to a folk song um and there's also a lot of places he 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 wanted to see if we could seamlessly go in and out of composed bits and improvisation uh seamlessly without without it being apparent like oh this is oh this 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 part must have been composed and then oh now they're improvising over here like there's a lot of parts in that piece where you can't tell and there are parts where you can't tell you're like okay he's taking a solo and that's probably improvised or i think there's one moment in the fourth movement where the whole piece for a minute is just complete band improvisation it's like we're going to f major seven tonality and we're just going to figure out what happens and it's just going to go down um and so yeah it was like it was a it was a it was a an ambitious undertaking um, to figure out how to do all that. But it was really the thing that kind of allowed us to figure out where the boundaries for this ensemble were. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, happy to say they were pretty far away. <laughs> the boundaries were off in the distance somewhere. I don't even think we even got to them, you know, in with, within my tenure there. There's still unexplored territory. But that's what makes music and musicians endlessly fascinating, endlessly fascinating because there's that constant. I was talking to my son this morning about sports. He's like a massive football fan. Mm-hmm. And we just talk about like players that, and it's the same with music. There's, for the people who are amazing at something, there's n- nothing is ever good enough. There's never, I've done it. I'm there. I've arrived. I've achieved. It's always, yeah. but what if I go there? Or what yeah. If, well, and, the, the, the problem is that you get somewhere thinking you're going to get an answer and you just, you just get another question. So you're like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to have to figure out what that is and what that means. And once you get there, there's only another question after that. So you're just constantly like, okay, <laughs> let's let's go down this road and see what this is. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to me. I came to see you guys at Bush Hall in London mm-hmm. in 2008. Wow. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and I'd like heard the band and I sort of knew what I was in for. And I had a friend who had no idea who you were, who I'd just been with that <laughs> afternoon. And he said, what are you doing tonight? I said, I'm going to see this band. He went, can I come? And I went, yeah, but. <laughs> just like warning you. <laughs> yeah. Like it might not be. And he, like, and he, he's now a lifelong punch fan and he loves it. Wow. He was blown away. But looking back at seeing the, the documentary and seeing footage of you in the back of the cab on the way to that show going, mm-hmm. do we do the whole piece? Do we break it up? Do we kind of. How are people going to take this? And like, and but from my experience of that night, it was such a complete, like, 
successful evening of musical communication kind of on all levels oh, and to see this sort of conversations that probably happened three hours before that yeah it was extraordinary yeah, right you know the, we had those conversations a lot and like i said before our 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 ingenious plan of releasing something accessible so that people would be more likely to give us a chance on the on the adventurous stuff didn't work <laughs> it did not do what we wanted it to do um one because i think people were kind of already scratching their heads on how to grow a woman from the ground <laughs> for some of that stuff but then also once punch came out it was just like it was we were going to get the reaction we were going to get regardless um and uh yeah there's just always this this ongoing conversation of do we just present it as like yeah how's like what's the best way to do it present your piece as the thing that you intended or do people need do people need more context in the form of other songs? Do people need to take a break from listening in this way? So do we split up the movements? Do we do a couple up front and then a couple of bluegrass songs and then finish the piece? Or do we present the piece in its entire, like how, how are we going to do this so that it gives people the best chance of taking it in and hopefully enjoying it? Um, and, you know, I think at some point we just said we we this was our this was our vision. This is what it is. Like we have to present it. Um you know, as if you're going to I we, we always kind of we always make the analogy of like going to a, a great restaurant. You're going there because of the chef, you know, and if it's a you know if it's a tasting menu, get the tasting menu because they've designed this thing. It's like a set list, you know, of like the way they want you to experience, to have this experience. And yes, you can order a la carte off the menu and, you know, create your own experience, which I kind of liken to like, oh, taking requests <laughs> or, you know, picking, picking things. But, you know, if you want to present your vision, then you, then you need to do that. And some people will respond well and some people won't but that's okay because the ones that do are going to, you're going to bring them into your artistic world. And I think at the end of the day, that's, that's what we settled on. And it's that I'd sort of wonder, cause the venue I saw you in was a seated venue. And I mm -hmm. wondered like, we're, we're, if presumably different nights you're playing different venues. And if you've got an audience that's standing, yes, that puts a different dynamic <laughs> on it. And like, do you know what I mean? It's, I, I find it fascinating because it's very much so. Cause it's such yeah. a, there's like such a classical element to that piece, but at the same time, it's not classical music. And yes. there's such a kind of bluegrass folk element, but at the same time, it's not bluegrass. And so like, I, I love music that you have to work a bit at, mm -hmm. but finding that balance, do do? Of like how, you know, how far people are prepared to work is a constant, must be a constantly shifting sort of boundary. Yeah. And you, you, you bring up a really good point of venue makes a huge difference as to what people are expecting for that evening of music. And you can take the same band playing the same set list and the same audience, put them in two different kinds of venues. Like you said, you can put them in a bar with standing room only, or you can put them in a concert hall 
and you will have completely different experiences. Same people, same music, completely different experiences. And I, that was one thing we learned very quickly is that venue dictates so much of what, of the expectation of what the night is going to be. I'll, you know, I'll never forget. We were playing, we were on, we were touring for punch playing blind, leaving the blind in its entirety every night. And we played this club in San Diego, California called the belly up, which is just like, it's a, it was, it's a rock club, you know, with a big bar in the center of the room and a giant shark hanging down. And the whole club is like padded in this like black carpet to keep, you know, the sound down because the people that play there are, you know, just cranking it up. And here we are with our two little microphones, uh, you know, playing this very intricate, you know, bluegrass acoustic music in this. It's just like the completely wrong place to be doing this. And the people that came, there was a, a you know people that sat and they, you know, they had folding chairs and they put them out. But then there were people that just came to the bar and they were just like, what? the hell is going on up there and it really it felt like the notes were going out about three feet in front of the stage and just like disappearing into you know nothingness and you know we did it we made it through and it wasn't the only place like that we played at that time or on that tour but it was just like you know it just felt like you were you were playing into the void (laughs) you know meanwhile we had played that same music at carnegie hall in Zankel Hall in the small room. And it's like, yeah, that's where it made sense. So the context of that, you know, the context, the context is important. Yeah. Well, I, I, I interviewed, um, Critter ages ago and I asked him about, cause when I saw you in London the night before you'd been playing in Glasgow and it hadn't gone so well. Mm-hmm. And, and I asked him about that <laughs> and, he, and he said, he, well, he said he thought the problem was more expectation than anything. Cause it had been built on the posters as a bluegrass gig. And so yeah. people came hot bluegrass for, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. And he said, just so, and again, it's before you've even set foot on a stage, you know, like venue yeah. matters, but also the, what, you know, the, the mood you're enticing the audience to arrive in also matters. Yeah. I, I don't know if it made it into the documentary or not, but the, I, for some reason I remember seeing something where we're just like, we just, you know, we see how it's built hot bluegrass. And we're just like, Oh no. <laughs> So we know what we're in for, you know, and I, and I will say even in the documentary, like, you know, editing is, is a powerful tool. Like, you know, it, it looked worse than it, than it actually was. Cause you know, we actually did do the thing of, we played maybe five or six bluegrass songs first before we got into the piece. Um, but then, yeah, you know, there I, there was a lot of head scratching during the piece and then the one drunk guy heckling us from the back of the room <laughs> which is obviously the bit that they're going to show right like bob, exactly. bob dylan has judas shouted at him once and it's followed him yeah, around for years yeah 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 and that's you know yeah one of the most famous moments in his career yeah um and so like at what point did it become clear to you that this was more than a, a like a one or two album project was it was like punch that point or did that come a bit later no i mean it is earlier you know i think uh, within the first couple of get togethers in 2005, we knew that we wanted it to be an actual serious ongoing band. And I, I remember Noam saying, you know, we should really consider 
putting some time into this and like, let's give it five years and see where we're at. And I think at the five year mark, no one even blinked, you know, at continue. It was just obvious, like, yes, this is a thing and this is what we're doing now. And, you know, until last year for me, there wasn't ever a question that it would just continue on in perpetuity. Um, and so it was just kind of this, yeah, it was just thing. It just made too much sense and was too fun. And we were, you know, I think as long as the creativity is still there and we're all feeling like there's more, more things to explore and new sounds are being made. And of course, you know, the, the, the personal relationships also have to be there because if you hate each other, then there's no reason to do it unless you're making a gazillion dollars, which of course we're not. Um, but you know, we, it, it just kind of was like, Oh, we would finish a project and there's always two parts to, to making a record, right? There's the making of the record and then there's what happens after you put it out into the world and then the touring of the record. And by the time, you know, what you think you've made when you release the record into the world it hasn't even been revealed to you yet, you know? So you, you spend the next year, year and a half playing in front of people. And then what you've made is actually revealed. And then you can assess and say, okay, this was really successful or this thing I thought was this one thing isn't that. So let's try and figure out what we thought we had made and see if we can make that thing this next time. And so there's this ongoing kind of conversation within between the musicians, but also with the audience as to what it is that you're doing. And so the next record always gives you an opportunity to kind of figure out the stuff that, you know, keep going with the stuff that works or figure out why the stuff you, you thought would work didn't work and remake that in some way that hopefully works. And then add in some, whatever new element that you've discovered or you want to approach, or you didn't get, to put in the last record for whatever reason. So there's always a, it feel like there's always this next, like, okay, now we're going to try this. Okay. Now we're going to try this. Um, and that's just the way that it went for us. Um, and, 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 you know, and it will continue to go. <laughs> well, and it's interesting. You were talking about uh, the personal element and the relationships bit of it. And it felt like as an outsider, but you know, we sort of, we can, we watch things happen now because of social media and do like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, we, we feel like we're involved with the bands we know on a week in week out basis. And mm-hmm. that's been around for a while. And it felt like there was this sort of sense of like, we're all moving to New York and it, it felt like there was a real intent to be like a, a gang and a grand. You all had nicknames for each other. And yeah. it's like, it felt like <laughs> almost this sort of gang mentality. We're all going to, we're in this now and we're, mm-hmm. we're committing to it and we're creating a thing. We're not just playing music. We are, sort of forming a, a unit and a, it was fascinating to sort of to see it because it felt so deliberate yeah it, and it was you know before you know in the uh, i guess it was the two two and a half three years from when we first got together to when punch came out um yeah, everyone kind of was was tying up their loose ends you know critter was in the infamous string dusters and uh he had he kind of just started that band when this came along and you know he had to navigate that terrain because he those guys were his best friends you know uh 
so he ultimately said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you guys a year, but then I'm going to jump over and do Punch Brothers. And I had, you know, a whole thing going on in Los Angeles where I'm from uh, that I had to tie up those loose ends. And, you know, I had been with Jerry Douglas for six years and kind of had to figure out how to make my exit from that. And Chris had put Nickel Creek on hiatus. So there was, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on. And we each we all lived in different places. I was in. L.A., Greg Garrison lived in Colorado. Chris was in New York. Noam and, and, and Critter were in Nashville. So it was really hard to get together. We'd have to plan time. We'd have to fly and meet. Um, and so once we decided, like, okay, this is the thing. Everyone's going to be out of their commitments, and we can really focus on it. Like, we need to all be in the same place. And it was either going to be Chicago or New York. And... um as uh, as you saw at the end of the of the documentary, the stuff with Greg uh, didn't really work out, and and part of it was was the moving aspect of it. Um, and he was the only one at the time with a family, and he's just like I, you know, I can't uproot my family to take a chance on this band, and which is you know, at now as a parent myself of two, <laughs> I can totally understand that. And he, you know, he made his exit, and we descended upon New York and right about the same time found Paul and he was fresh out of college. I mean, we even, yeah, he was a, starting his senior year at the Curtis Institute. Um, so we plucked him out of college. <laughs> he had, he had no responsibilities or anything. So he was kind of the perfect guy to come in and, and do that. Um, but yeah, it was very intentional. We are going to move to the same place. It's going to be a, it has to be a, a hotbed of, creativity and artistic uh goings on all over the place and new, chris was already in new york that's where we started getting together that's where the band kind of was born anyway in a real sense and so it made sense for us to go there and and it was it was fantastic you know right all, all of the good and bad elements of new york was really I, i'll look back on that period of of my life with great great fondness and it's just, just uh, even at the time, sort of hearing live recordings of stuff at the living room, or you know, just and there's a bit of in the the deluxe version of Antifogmatic, there's a DVD with one of the P Bingo mm -hmm. nights, and just this, you know, it felt like a combination of a residency and just a sort of like I don't know, just it, I've never seen anything quite like it. Just the idea that you turn up every week, try some new stuff, play some songs, take some requests, play a bit of bark, you know, to see yeah. see how it all went and. It just felt like yeah. such a, a joyous thing to it see really even was. from a distance. Yeah. No, it was it was really just such a fun thing to do. And you know, the the point was like, yes, let's get a regular gig so that we, you know, start becoming familiar to people, but let's do it in a way where we can experiment with all the stuff that we are thinking about. And, you know, yes, let's do a, a all Radiohead night where we play our favorite Radiohead songs and see if we can map them from their their ensemble onto our ensemble and let's see if we can make it work. You know, yes, let's try, uh, let's do the Brandenburg Concerto or a movement from a Mozart quartet or something to see if that works. Or let's, you know, it was just, yeah, it was really, it was like a laboratory where it was, a, you know, a, a safe enough space to where we we could feel okay about something not being successful. Mm. Um, 
And if it didn't work, fine. And if it did work, great, even better. And yeah, it, you know, it was like, it was also a challenge of, we know we're coming back next week. How are we going to outdo ourselves? How are we going to up the ante each time? And it really forces you to, to, it forces you to work fast. It forces you to get to the heart of what you're trying to do. And every, every single thing that we worked up for those nights somehow made it into our own compositions, whether it was, um, you know, a, in, an orchestration solution to figuring out how to make other sounds on these instruments uh, to, um, you know, oh, uh, this kind of feel from this song that normally we wouldn't ever do ourselves, but like now we've figured out how to do that and make it work in this context. I mean, just all the things that you can think of, all the, 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 bits and pieces and bones of how to make these things work in this ensemble made it into our original music. And it was invaluable. It's really interesting because after that sort of, you know, treating um, Blind Leaving the Blind, talking about two mics and tape and a room and trying to get out of the way of it, you sort Mm -hmm. of then embark on these sort of collection of studio albums, all of which have a producer and Mm -hmm. a producer with a pretty strong musical character in each Mm -hmm. case all very different yeah. and, and a, and a very like, wide tonal palette, including some drums, including some, you know, kind of process treated stuff. And so it's just, and, and I guess that's all part of the exploration we're talking about. Right. But I'm fascinated by that because you are also a producer yourself mm-hmm. and that I presume is a big part of the next chapter for you. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious how like working on that stuff and bringing somebody else in because you become such a, like tight knit little group of people and such a driven, and then to bring somebody else in and go, what do you think? Yeah. Where should I, we you go? know, I think it's so important. Um, you can get so walled off and myopic in, especially in a context like, like punch brothers where we're really like working hard on, on what we're doing. And you can lose sight of whether or not you're actually communicating what you want to communicate. So, you know, I think it's really, really beneficial to have outside ears that you trust to come in and tell you whether or not it's actually translating the way you want it to. And if it's not to help you or even just to tell you why it's not and what they think you need to do in order to get it there. Um, Each producer that we had was, exactly the right producer for that moment in time for us to tell us those things um, and help us, you know, figure out how to get where we wanted to be Um, at, at, you know, when we first started, we're very, very adamant that we, we just wanted to capture the instruments or the ensemble as it is. And that's what you hear on how to grow. You know, we're literally just sitting in a semicircle and playing these songs. And that's great. And that's also what we did on punch just in a different room. (laughs) You can hear the difference in rooms, uh, sonically between those two records. And then when we got into the studio to make anti-fogmatic, we were still as a band is very much like, no, it needs to be as natural sounding as possible. 
but John Bryan, our producer was like, okay, you know, I think that I understand why you wanted to do it that way. So let me try and figure out how to maintain that for you guys while also helping, uh, helping you guys sonically in. And so there was a different way of recording for us where we, we actually, we recorded all the tracks instrumentally without vocals with us just kind of imagining the vocals. It was a very tricky thing to do, uh, where we would play and imagine where the vocals are. So anytime, you, you know, you hear a fill in between a vocal or any of that kind of stuff, that was all us playing without, without a vocal. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then we had Chris go back in, I think, and actually I sang a song on that album too. So we had the vocalists come in afterwards and overdub vocals to what was there. And, you know, there are, there are pros and cons to doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Sonically, I think you probably get better result on the vocal, but you end up losing the, re- the, the legitimate response from the band. And also there are very subtle timing and pocket things that end up, uh, not happening because you're not playing to a vocal. You're just playing to, you know, an instrumental track, essentially playing to where the pulse is. Um, but it was important for us to do it that way and to hear what we sound like in a really wonderful sonic environment. It's like, okay, there are benefits, sonic benefits to helping the music translate in this way. Maybe what, you know, what are we going to do next time? How do we take the stuff that worked from that and apply it to the next time? Well, you know, maybe having Chris sing live, <laughs> you know, there's, it's a really hard, it's a, the, the trickiest thing in making punch brothers records is that you can't get a good, it, it's very, I'm not going to say you can't, it's the trickiest part is getting a good vocal sound and a good mandolin sound together because the way the phasing works and the, and the microphone placement, all of the, the stuff you don't want from the mandolin, all of the high end, all the pick noise, all of the stuff that's just like, ah, get that out of here. That is what comes up vertically off of the mandolin and straight into the vocal mic. <laughs> so if you EQ to get that stuff out of the vocal mic, then the vocal sounds terrible. And then if you leave it in there, then the mandolin sounds terrible. So it's like always this balance of how are we, how are we going to figure out that so that we can get the vocal with the performance and we can all play that way together. Um, and we've tried a bunch of different ways and I think we figured, figured it out. Um, and was that, so did all the vocals go on after, did there any sort of breaks or solos that went on after the vocals? Like you say, it was recorded that way. There's one track on Antidogmatic, like Missy, which has uh-huh. a fiddle break on that I love. It's one of my favorite bits of recording fiddle playing of. And what is <laughs> astonishing about it is that that thing that a proper solo does, which is take the energy from where the singer leaves it off and then lifts it to somewhere else and hands it back for them to go even further, mm-hmm. whatever form that is. Like it's just a taking of energy and a kind of nurturing of it and passing it back to somebody. Yeah. To think of that fiddle solo being recorded without any vocal on that track at all. That's right. Astounds me slightly. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the way it went down. So the, the solo was live. Um, if I recall correctly, I think we did three takes of that song uh, instrumentally before the vocal went on. And that was take three. And I think it, 
if it's not a complete take from top to bottom, then it might have been a front, you know, a front verse from two or the start from two or and then on to three. Um, and probably if you go back and hear each solo, it's the, I think the idea is probably there in one. And then it's like a little bit more shape in two. And then three is what's on the record. Um, and I remember, <laughs> I remember, so John Bryan produced that record, Antifogmatic. And most of the time he, he actually wasn't in the studio for the, for the recording. He would come towards the end of the night and listen to the, you know, last take or two of whatever we were doing. And then after we'd leave, he'd go back and listen, uh, to everything. And, and then in the morning we, you know, we would actually hang out a lot and talk late into the night, but, uh, he would kind of implant ideas in our heads of how to approach recording stuff. And the next day we'd come and, and we'd try it. But I remember we, we, we did, we tracked Missy. It was the last song of that night and we had turned all the lights down in the studio. So it was just, just barely enough to be able to see what you're doing. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we played it three times. And when we did the third time and I did the solo and I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm getting to the end and I can see the finish line, I know exactly where it's going, you know, and I remember finishing that solo. My heart was pounding. Cause I knew like, Oh yeah, I think I got, I think I got a good one here. And we finished the song and I look up and there's John Bryan in the control room, just like jumping <laughs> up and down with his arms in the air. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess maybe that was a good one. <laughs> one of the few times that he was there and just like, you know, yeah, it was, it, that was nice. That was a good one. And like we could, we could keep talking and go through every punch brothers record. And I could, <laughs> I could talk to you for like hours, but yeah, We'll I'm really interested. Part what, two, right? Yeah, I'm really interested in because I, I don't know this, but I'm presuming that producing is going to be sort of one of the things you you want to spend more time doing after Punch Brothers. Yeah. Um, and did was this was that something you were already doing yourself at this point? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, in a in a way, I've been kind of producing various things since you know since my dad gave me a four track recorder when I was ten years old. <laughs> you know. I, I, just always making recordings and I kind of became a session musician here in Los Angeles when I was 14. So just spent a lot, a lot, a lot of my time in the studio making recordings and, and being on sessions and doing that kind of stuff. Um, and I will definitely continue to do it. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, my, my behind the scenes role in punch brothers essentially over the course of our tenure, was kind of was the producer. Um, I was always the go-to, uh, you know, even when we had like less so on, on the early records. So we were still all just kind of finding our bearings, but once, uh, we did phosphorescent blues and T-bone, we had T-bone in the studio and I was kind of hit even outside of punch brothers kind of becoming one of his lieutenants, I guess you could, you could say, where he would bring me in on projects mm. that he physically couldn't finish all, you know, the workload of and like, okay, he would dole out stuff. Oops, he would dole out stuff for me to do. Like um, he was working on this show, Nashville that was on ABC 10 years ago or something like that. 
and there was just so much music to be made. He's like, okay, you're in town, you're in LA. Okay. You're coming to the studio and these four songs are going to be your responsibility. Okay, great. So go off and make them. Okay, cool. I'll make these songs and then bring them back. And so by the time we did phosphorescent blues, I was already kind of working that way with him. And he, he was fantastic in the studio. And I think he, he got was probably our best record out of us. Um, but a lot of, a lot of the stuff where he knew that it, it was under control, he left to me, <laughs> um, to, to kind of see it through and kind of, and, and be with the other guys in the band and figure out how to, how to get the ideas across, uh, onto tape, which actually it was onto tape. And then we put it in Pro Tools, but first, first to tape. And then after that record, uh, you know, we self-produced the the previous two we self produced all ashore and church street blues um which you know if i guess if there was i mean it really was collaborative effort but if there was anyone who would have fulfilled the role of what an outside producer would have done then that that stuff fell to me and it's an interesting one because to like the outside listener what the role of a producer is can be a bit hard to grasp at times. And the role of a producer changes very much with different records. Like sometimes yes. it's, you know, to sort of drag the music out of somebody. Sometimes it's to find shapes and sounds and settings for songs. Sometimes it's just to get people playing together, you know, and yeah, it's, and I'm sure it's all, and I heard you talking at one point about you produced um, a record of Critters and Julian Larges that I love Mount Royal. Um, yeah. And I read something or heard something you'd said about, having a bit of a struggle with song selection for Chris for that record. Mm. And I love Chris's voice. I think and like one of the songs that's on there, the Eddie Vedder song, um, yeah. Sleeping By Myself, is just oh, one man. of the most beautiful things that there is. And yeah. to hear that you'd sort of gone through a bit of a round of going, oh, there's these other songs you want to do, and I think I'm going to steer him away from those because they don't quite suit his voice or whatever the reasoning was, you know. It's yeah. fascinating hearing that, yeah. already knowing the record. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, that's just the process of any... I think of any record and and like you're saying, you know, the role of a, a record producer is pretty nebulous. Mm. <laughs> you know, what does this person actually do? And, you know, my answer is just that they do whatever needs to be done in order to get this record from not existing to existing. And every artist, even every record, every song requires a different approach. Um, so yeah, you know, you so you may need to be a really hands-on producer where you're helping write the songs and arrange the songs and figuring out how to record them and get the best performances out of everyone or you can be a producer who sets up some microphones, listens back behind the speakers and says, "Yes, this is translating and it's sounding good and that's all you and then you get out of the way." You know, um and so, you know, and, and, and I think the biggest thing that a producer is they're, they're a proxy for the audience, right? They're the first set of ears that are hearing this thing. And you, you know, you also have to approach it. Like I, I am the audience. How, how am I reacting to this? And then you're the only person, the only audience member who's in a position to actually fix things that aren't working. <laughs> So, you know, that's kind of the role and to, to your, your comment about, you know, song selection, 
and figuring that stuff out with Critter, you know, that yeah, that's part of the gig. And you want a producer you trust. You know, you don't want someone whose opinions you don't you don't value because they're gonna maybe tell you stuff that that you didn't think of or feels counter to what you believe or thought it was going to be. And if you don't trust them, then you're why, why have them there? Um, and, and ultimately you just want, everyone wants to make the best thing possible. So get somebody whose ears you trust and has a way of communicating that doesn't, uh, that doesn't get in your head <laughs> and prevent you from actually achieving what you want to achieve. And I guess with, um, particularly with like acoustic complex acoustic music, like going back to your point before about sometimes losing sight of whether you've communicated what you're trying to communicate, mm-hmm. like to be able to be the person going, yeah, brilliant. You got all the notes, right? Beautiful. Not feeling it. Like, yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I'm, you know, I'm sure in your own head, you can get so caught up in either one or the other that the other loses a bit. 100%. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that happens all the time, <laughs> you know, and I, I, we've really gotten in the habit of, uh, of, of, you know, making little voice memos of stuff, especially when we're working on a complex idea that maybe, you know, we, we, it's taking a long time to work through like three or four bars of something, you know, we've like sat down and like tried to figure this thing out for a couple of hours and like, oh, I think we've got it you know, we always make a a recording of it and put it away. And I always, we always make a bad, uh, you know, we, we want to listen on fresh ears because Mm -hmm. you want to have the, the hardest thing to do as a, as a composer, I feel like, especially if you're working on something for a long period of time is to have the experience of hearing it as if you're hearing it for the first time. So what, yeah, like I was saying, we've gotten into the habit of, of, We'll work on something, we'll record it, we'll put it away and then sleep on it. And in the morning or two days later, or sometimes a month later, we'll go back and listen to it. And it gives, it's as close as you'll get as to having the impression of hearing it for the first time. And only then can you really assess what you have. Um, unless you, unless you bring in an outside set of ears. Yeah, it's funny when I'm yeah, back in the days when I was in a band and we record stuff like whatever we recorded it on on tape was digital or whatever. We'd always mix stuff down onto a cassette and go and listen to it in somebody's car. Mm-hmm. It's like you're sat there with these beautiful studio monitors oh, playing yeah. back your own music to yourself, and yeah. you can get lost in this sort of glorious world of don't we sound great? And so you just go and listen yeah. to it, and where everybody else is going to hear it on. Yeah, and you go, oh, absolutely, okay, can't it, can't it the bass? Okay. <laughs> oh, always. I mean, all, you know, yes. Check your mix in the studio. Go put it in the car, go play an MP3 through your, your phone, see if it's working. You know, that's one of the things that John Bryan imparted on us that I hadn't really thought of. Uh, I don't think any of us had really thought of is just how, how it's a miracle that any records actually get made that sound good. I mean, not that they sound good, but it's a miracle that, that, that records connect with people because everyone is listening on a different system and what you thought you were doing in the studio is not what you're going to get on a certain different system. And, you know, it's obviously people have figured out ways to plan for the best (laughs) or plan for the worst, hope for the best. Uh, 
but yeah, you, you have, you, you, you got to reference as much as you can because you just don't know what some, somebody's going to be listening on it. Maybe a 30 year old boombox that they just happen to still have laying around in their garage somewhere, or they might have a, you know, nice Macintosh preamp and be listening on a $10,000 system. You just, you really don't know. Yeah. And you were, you were sort of saying, talking earlier on about, um, sort of the constant regeneration of ideas. And as long as the ideas are still there and you said, so it was around a year ago, you started thinking that maybe this wasn't for you anymore. I'm just well, curious to, curious to know yeah, what that process was really. It's not even that really, because, you know, personally we're all as, as good of friends and getting along as well as we ever have musically. We're making the best music I think we've ever made and playing the best as an ensemble we've ever played. And I have a, my voice memo app is filled with starts of stuff that we've collected over the last two years. Um, and, and really cool stuff, but there's also a whole life outside of that world that I have to consider now. And I have small children, you know, I'm married, uh, and it's, it's really important to me to be able to create the stable environment that I had when I was young for my family. And, you know, my kids are, they're going to be nine and six Well, one turned six yesterday, actually. Um, and the older one will be nine in a month. And the idea that I'm, I'm like, I'm halfway there raising him is crazy to me because it feels like he was just born and mm -hmm. I just needed to put the brakes on stuff and, and, and change the way that I'm going about my life so that I can really have this time with, with them. Um, it's going by so fast, uh, you know, for as crazy as the pandemic was, the shutdown is actually really eye opening, uh, for me, cause I've been, I've been performing since I was four years old and I've been performing professionally since I was six and I started touring when I was 15 and I turned 45 a couple weeks ago. I've literally been doing it my whole life and I've never thought twice about it. And I've just always been like forward, 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 go, go, you know, Oh, here's this next thing. I'm going to do this next thing. I'm going to do this next thing. And for the first time in my life in the pandemic, I was like a stationary. I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have anything to do except, you know, wait this thing out and be with my family. And I was like, oh, this is like really, this is an okay way to live. And I'm creating deep meaning for us here in this, in our family life. And being back out on the road last year, I love, love playing music. And I love performing music. And I love doing it with Punch Brothers and my bandmates and all of that. But I was out there going, yeah, boy, this is really taking away from this thing that we were able to create at home. And that thing is finite in that the kids will grow up and move mm -hmm. away. And I just, I just had this epiphany of like, I, we've been doing Punch Brothers for almost 20 years and it's okay to take a break. Um, I would be absolutely shocked if we, never played music again together. I just don't think that's a possibility. <laughs> but for now, 
yeah, I, I'm kind of reassessed in prioritizing different things. Um, I think what, you know, the other thing is we, we achieved what we set out to achieve when we all moved to New York, we did the thing that we set out to do and we went way beyond it even. So I feel like anything else is bonus. And at this point, yeah, I want to be home. I want to, I want to have this time with my family and you know, yeah, when my kids are gone and, and, and grown, who knows, you know, maybe there'll be another punch brothers record or more things to, to have happen. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I was at with it all. And it was a hard decision to come to, but ultimately, you know, I feel, I feel good about it and I'm excited about what's, what's going to happen. And do you know sort of what, what the next sort of few months or year look like, or is it a case of waiting to see yet? Well, there's a little bit of waiting to see. I've been, I've been scoring film and television the last couple of years. So I imagine once the writer strike is, is resolved and things get back into production, there'll be uh, more of that stuff on the horizon and producing records. I'm in the, in the final stages of, uh, of doing the record for uh, Willie Watson, formerly of the old crow medicine show. So uh, me and, and Kenneth Pattengale from the milk carton kids are, are co-producing that one. It should be hopefully out, you know, end of the year or beginning of next year. And then I've been, I've been doing a ton of arranging symphonic arranging, strangely enough, not something I thought I would be getting into, but, uh, um, I just turned in a, a piece for the San Francisco symphony. They're going to play at their 4th of July concert. I did some stuff for the Kennedy center and, uh, the big project that'll happen this fall is I was asked by the Martha Graham dance company to adapt Copeland's Rodeo ballet for bluegrass instruments. Oh, wow. And they're going to do the original choreography, the original Agnes DeMille choreography, uh, with, uh, with us playing this new so arrangement of this piece. Feels amazing. That hasn't happened yet. Doesn't it really? I know. Right. It's, it's kind of wild. Um, and so I'll be, you know, drawing upon all of my experience, with uh, you know yeah with blind leaving the blind and and, right. and all of that to kind of bring this piece make this piece as su successful as it can be on these instruments who's more qualified to do that yeah there's there there are a few people <laughs> but only a few brilliant well i mean best of luck with all of it it sounds yeah, very much you. like a, a choice to step towards something than a choice to step away from something and that, that and feels... that's what it is yeah and i and i you know, it, it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was fair to the other guys to say, I only want to do this two weeks a year, you know, or, or what, you know, whatever would have been an appropriate amount of time mm. for, for me personally, um, and prevent them from, from continuing to do it as much as they want. So, you know, it, the decision to just, to split was so that they can continue to do it. And, you know, and, and Brittany Haas is stepping in and she's, you know, her and Stuart Duncan are my two favorite living field players. <laughs> there are a lot of other ones that I love too. Uh, so I love you guys if you're listening to this. <laughs> but Brittany's going to be amazing. And she has a history with, with, with Chris and obviously with Paul. And um, she's actually filled in for me a couple of times when I, uh, when I was out of commission with COVID last year. Um, and so she seemed like the obvious choice to do it. 
and it's going to be great. And I, I, as a fan, I can't wait to hear what they come up with. Uh, yeah, I mean, me too. It's exciting, that's going to be. It's interesting. My sort of strangely, my obviously my first thought was, you know, we'll miss the fiddle playing. But a very quick second thought was, well, this is going to change the vocal mix because that thing that you yes. and the two <laughs> and the, you and the two Chris's have together. You know, I know you all sing, but you and the two Chris's do the bulk of it, and it's you know yeah. that those those harmonies are a huge part of what makes punch sound like punch. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, this past weekend, like, Oh, how are they going to do a couple of these songs, which are very dependent upon, like you said, that vocal blend, you know, Paul Mm -hmm. can, can get in there and, uh, and sing very well in the, in the blend as well. So a lot of that stuff he can cover. Uh, but then there's stuff where everyone's singing, Mm. but you know, they'll, they'll figure it out or, you know, retire those songs i i I don't know (laughs) i don't know but you got a good brain trust in that group so they'll they'll figure it out they've solved a lot of problems in the past they'll probably yes we got some problem solving left in them (laughs) um i I mean i can't let you go without just saying thank you for just you know some of them some of my favorite music of all time and some of the best experiences of live music i've ever had i think i saw you I think the last time I saw Punch over here was the All Ashore tour. I think that's the last time you were here. Oh yeah, and the moment the, you... the Barbican. Wait, where yeah. was that? Yeah. Yes, but and the moment that you stepped out from the mics for the last minute or two of familiarity mm. is just one of those, you know, hairs on the back of the hairs on the back of the hairs on the back of the whatever moments <laughs> of just being in a thing that is entire a, a world in two minutes that is then, then gone, yeah. like you know. Well, that's that's lovely, absolutely lovely to hear because that's what we're striving for every night. So to to know that that experience was 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 being created and and enjoyed is it, very meaningful. So I I appreciate that. Well, thank you for all the music and all the music to come. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I've enjoyed yeah, it so course. much. Thank you for uh, thank you for inviting me and having me on. I really appreciate it. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collinsguitars.com and find out why.